You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. You're following along with the gospel reading in the bulletin, um, and you're a little bit confused. The reading actually comes from Mark, uh, chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. Um, This is where we'll be preaching from today. Just want to let you know. And I'm sure that you have noticed that the Christmas decorations have been taken down and our liturgical colors have changed once again. Barb Fletcher made this beautiful background that we have behind the altar that um, really makes the the colors of green for the season pop. Um, Today is the first Sunday in the season of Epiphany. In Advent, we waited for the light of Christ to come. In Christmas, we celebrated its arrival. And then Epiphany, we rejoice in its going forth into the world. It is a season where we focus on the glory of God as it is revealed to us in Jesus and in the message of salvation that made its way to Jew and Gentile alike. It's why on the Feast of Epiphany earlier this week, we celebrated the the bringing of the gifts of the Magi coming to Jesus. It was the first encounter of the Gentiles, the first Gentiles who recognized the Messiah, Jesus as Lord. Today, we're going to be talking about the baptism of Christ as one of the central events where God's glory is revealed in Jesus. And throughout this season, we'll be walking through the life of Christ and we'll culminate in the transfiguration where his glory is revealed once again. But as we transition into a new church season, I think it's worth pausing to remember that the realities that we focus on at different times of the year don't become less true or grow stale just because the season has changed. We shift our focus because we are finite creatures who cannot look at everything at once. And to try to do so is to look at nothing at all. But until Christ returns and sets all things right, we still and always wait for the light to come. Sometimes events in our lives or in the world, like this week's violence in the Capitol, will draw our attention back to the longing for Christ. As we pray, come, Lord Jesus, And we recognize that things will not be right until he comes and reigns once and for all. Similarly, we do not stop wondering at the marvel of the incarnation or living into the reality of the confidence that it gives us in our salvation and our gratitude that God has come down to save us just because Christmastide has passed. For the next six weeks, we will pay special attention to the glory of God revealed in the life of Jesus. To do so, we'll walk alongside his disciples as they come to understand, came to understand who Jesus is. And their journey and ours begins in the wilderness of Judea, alongside the the Jordan River, where a strange man appeared to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the baptizer was certainly a wild figure who knew how to draw a crowd. He was a Nazarite from birth, which meant, among other things, that he took a vow to never cut his hair. So we see, even in the, in the text, um, in some of the other Gospels, it, it draws attention, right before our reading, it draws attention to John's clothing, where he wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt, this sort of wild, uh, rustic clothing that he has out in the wilderness. But he also has like the hair to match it. He, he had the full effect of a wild prophet in the wilderness proclaiming this this message that he brought of repentance, 
this message of, of the coming judgment of God. Because people didn't come to John merely because of his eccentric dress. It wasn't just because it was, it was fun to go, to go look at this sort of wild, crazy preacher. He also had this fiery preaching that he had. Mark, where we read today, doesn't record much except that he has a general call to repentance. But the other Gospels tell us that he had confrontations with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. He had vivid descriptions of a coming judgment. Suffice it to say that John's tongue was no tamer than his appearance. But perhaps the most striking thing about John was that for all of the attention that he attracted, he didn't want people's eyes to stay on him. He saw himself as a messenger preparing the way of the Lord. And he proclaimed to the crowd, to the religious leaders, and to those who chose to follow him as disciples, that another was coming. In our gospel reading from today, he put it this way, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is a profoundly humbling statement. Untying a person's shoe isn't just something that like a parent does for a child in that culture. It was a profoundly demeaning act in ancient Israel. One comment from the Babylonian Talmud, which was written a few hundred years after this account, but probably still maintained a similar cultural view, says that a student should render unto his teacher all the same kinds of service as a slave to his master, except for loosing his shoe. That was below the dignity of a disciple and was reserved for the slave. So John, when saying he's not even worthy to untie the shoes of the person who comes after him, is saying that he is not even worthy to be considered a slave, let alone a disciple of the one who is coming. So those who followed John, those who came to listen to him, those who, who saw themselves as John's disciples would have been expecting a great man. Nor was this greatness merely a matter of status, not that John really gave much credit to typical markers of status anyway. John also said, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This contrast in their ministries, where John's baptizing with water and the one who's coming is baptizing with the Holy Spirit, points out that there's a similarity to their ministries, but also they are different, not just in degree, but fundamentally, in kind. Not, it's not just that the person who comes is going to draw larger crowds, that he's going to be more successful in attracting people into baptizing into being baptized, that he's going to maybe reach a different social status with his message, that, that maybe the religious leaders will finally understand and come to believe. No, the person who's coming after John brings something that he cannot. Can you imagine the eagerness that must have filled his disciples who were listening to this and were waiting for this one to come? They sat under the seat of this wild prophet who must have been a great man in their eyes but he was constantly telling them that someone greater still was coming. We know that the apostle Andrew, and probably John, though wasn't named for sure, were among those who counted themselves disciples of John the Baptist. What were they expecting from the one who would come after him? Probably not an unknown son of a carpenter from Nazareth, 
a small, unimportant town with no real connection to the prophets. Not a man who joined in with a throng of people waiting to be baptized and took his turn in the water with all the others. On what basis could this Jesus be the great one, the one in whose presence John was unworthy? It was certainly not because of his accomplishments. Up to this point, Jesus had done nothing of note in his life, so far as we know. In all four Gospels, we only have one recorded story between his infancy and this moment at the river, when he got left behind on a family trip to Jerusalem as a boy, and was found discussing the law with the teachers in the temple. Precocious, to be sure, but nothing to base a claim of greatness upon. And Mark, the Gospel we read from today, is not concerned with Jesus' childhood at all. Even, not even his birth gets a mention. We've just spent all this season focusing on the birth of Jesus, on, on his advent, on his coming, on, on the miraculous um, gift of God to us in, in the birth of Jesus, and Mark doesn't mention it at all. This is the first time that Jesus is on the scene in his gospel, is at the river when he's baptized by John. Yet what is implied in the gospel of Mark is made explicit in the gospel of John that immediately after Jesus' baptism, John recognized him as the one who was coming after him, the one for whom he was sent to prepare the way. So what happened? Why this man? The answer, of course, many of you are probably familiar with it and was found in our gospel reading for today. John saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove, and he heard a voice proclaim, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. It did not matter that Jesus had no great social status. It did not matter that he had not yet accomplished anything in his earthly ministry. John knew that the most important thing about him was who God declared him to be. His ministry would eventually demonstrate that the voice had spoken true. In our reading today from the book of Acts, Peter said that after his baptism, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. After our reading, Peter goes on in that same little sermon that he preaches to say that the ultimate vindication of his identity, the ultimate proof that he really is the beloved Son of God, was when he was put to death on the cross and came back to life three days later. Resurrection is a pretty clear indicator that one is favored by God. But God's declaration that Jesus was the beloved son came before any of that happened. He was the beloved son before he began preaching, before he healed the sick, before his death and resurrection. And he was the beloved son when his preaching was rejected by the crowds, when those who called themselves his disciples abandoned him and walked away because his teaching was too hard, when the religious and political leaders rose up against him, when he begged for the cup that God had prepared to be taken from him. His identity preceded any action that he took, and it persisted in the face of what from an outside view may have looked like apparent failure in his ministry. 
No matter what happened, Jesus could always look back on God's words at his baptism as the definitive statement of his identity because he also knew that what the Father said about him was more important than what any other person said about him, more important than his success or his failures. And this is true not only of Jesus, but of you as well. God has made a declaration about your identity. And what he has said is the definitive statement of who you are. He says you are created in his image. Human beings, including you, are the pinnacle of creation. Not merely flesh, but eternal beings created to be in a relationship with God and to act as his representatives to all of creation. He says that you are a sinner. It's not primarily a statement about how good or badly you behave. It is a declaration that because of the disobedience of our father Adam and our continued disobedience, our connection with God is broken and our fundamental purpose as image bearers is unable to be fulfilled. We are still eternal beings, but instead of faithfully representing God to all creation, everything that we do is tainted by sin. We are supposed to be conduits of God's life and grace to the world. But our connection with the source of life is broken. We are born spiritually dead and physically dying. And the dead cannot bring life to the world. And yet despite that, he says that you are beloved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This beloved son, Jesus, was sent on our behalf because God loved us so much he was willing to give up his beloved son. And he proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, the beloved son, came in order that we may no longer be counted as sinners, but as righteous. Those who have had their their connection with the living God restored. And if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you have been given a new identity as a son or daughter of God. This identity is more important than how you feel about yourself. It is more important than how others perceive you. It is more important than what you have done or not done. It is more important than your political identity or your nationality or the color of your skin or anything else about you. It does not change on good days or bad days. God's statement is definitive. This can be difficult to believe at times because unlike Jesus, our lives do not perfectly align with the identity that God has declared for us. Sometimes, too often, we look more like sinners than saints and it's hard to believe that we are really counted among the righteous. We don't feel our restored connection to the source of all life. But God has declared who you are with the full knowledge, not only of the times you have failed, but of all the times that you will fail. He knows it all. And when there's an incongruence between your behavior and God's declaration of your identity, God's word on the matter is the truth. What he says is the most important thing about you.
God declared Jesus the beloved son at his baptism. And in moments of doubt, we can look back on our own baptism for the, an assurance in, of our identity, of who we are. Part of the grace that we receive in the sacraments is a new identity. In, our, in your baptism, you have been buried with Christ in his death, so that you might be united with him in his resurrection. It is the point where we recognize that you belong to the church and that your natural birth is no longer what primarily defines your family, because you're part of the family of God. Look around you if you're here or if you're joining us online, know that we are with you as well. And this is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. And Christ himself is among us. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Because he knows who we are. He knows the identity that has been declared to us through the gift of grace that God has given us. When you doubt that truth, you can be like Martin Luther, the great reformer, who in times of anxiety and distress, when he struggled to believe in the grace of God, in the grace that God had gifted him, when he saw his own sinfulness and felt that for sure the judgment of God must fall upon him, he would repeat to himself, I am baptized. I am baptized. He knew that that was a marker of his identity, that the proclamation of grace made in that moment was greater than anything that he experienced. It was greater than his own feelings. It was greater even than his sin. Because what God says about you is more important than anything that you can possibly do. And when you're insecure in this identity, when you understand who you are in Christ, when you understand the grace that you have received, the adoption that has been made, when you recognize that this is who you are, you'll find that the grace of God goes even further. Because he's not content to merely call us sons and daughters and leave us as we are. As if I took my dog Tegan and started calling him my son and dressing him up in clothes and acting as if I had three children. Because no long, matter how long I kept up the ruse, he's still a dog. I can't fundamentally change that. I can't make Tegan not a dog. But the same spirit that descended upon Christ at his baptism is given to us as well, and he does work to make us like Jesus. He works in us to make it so that our outward behavior matches what's already the inward identity and that we no longer look like sinners, but we look like the righteous. It's a process that takes our whole lives. And it's painful at times when we see the distance between who we are and who we would like to be. Because our behavior does matter, but it follows after our new identity. If you try to change your behavior without confidence in this identity, without believing in who Christ has declared you to be, without believing the word of God, it's like trying to run a race, where, to getting in a marathon, where you're stopping every, every few hundred feet to like look down at your chest to make sure you've still got the number on your chest, because you don't actually, you're not certain that you're really running the race. You're not likely to be very successful running the race if you're constantly stopping to check to see if you're actually in the race. It just doesn't work. But you can run the race 
that God has set before you with confidence because God has said that you are his. He has said that you are beloved. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, if you've been baptized into this new family, then you are his and God has declared your identity and God never lies. One day, trusting what he has said won't be a struggle. One day, you'll have a new body that's untainted by sin. One day, your behavior will always match up with your identity. One day, Christ, who is your life, will be revealed, and you also will be revealed with him in glory. One day, you will see Jesus face to face. He'll give you a white stone with your name on it, your true name that only you know, you and he know. And you will never doubt your identity again because you'll have had it declared face to face who you really are. But until that day comes, remember, God calls you his beloved child. And that is the most important thing about you. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.